We've heard it said a thousand times that life is about the journey and not about the destination. Yet all we talk about is the destination. Keeping score is a zoom in on that journey, a reminder that you're not alone, a reminder that you have more power than you think, an inspiration to take that next step. Hello, hello. Ms. Stella Dukley here. Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm so excited about our guest today. I got to chat with health and nutrition coach Erin Murray, and I've got to say, you are in for a treat. Erin is currently in the process of earning her master's in nutrition and health promotion, as well as becoming a registered dietitian. She has an amazing blog with delicious and wholesome recipes called The Uncommon Dish. And if you're interested, you can follow her on Instagram at Erin's Uncommon Eats. What I love about Erin and why she's on Keeping Score is because she's been tremendously instrumental in reshaping my relationship with food. It's really important that I say this first. This is not about being skinny. It's very much about thriving. I've been a client of Erin's for probably about a year now, and she was actually introduced to me by my trainer. Shout out to Kahinde Andarin, who is also amazing. I leave all of my conversations with Erin feeling empowered and hopeful about learning, growing, and optimizing my relationship with food. I don't know about you, but as early as I can remember, I fell into the pits of diet culture. And to be honest, it's actually really sad to reflect on because I've robbed myself of the freedom of being and have had so many unhealthy thoughts around eating and what it should look like, maybe like some of you. One of my impetuses to get better was to be able to model healthy skills. I couldn't imagine having a child one day and modeling behaviors that quite honestly, when looking at myself, were so cringeworthy. Erin's positivity and ability to make me feel safe has been inspiring, and most importantly, she's extremely knowledgeable and has relied heavily on real science and data as opposed to the shitty personal theories around dieting that we often hear everywhere around us. We'll get to learn about how Erin came to do this meaningful work and, of course, how during the COVID-19 pandemic, you can best support yourself from a nutrition perspective. How we self-soothe, often with food and alcohol, is definitely something to be examined. Hi, Erin. It's so nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm psyched to be here with you. Me too. As you've all heard a little bit before, Erin is somebody who's been super instrumental in my health journey, and I feel really grateful for this conversation. I know that it's going to be one that serves a lot of you in how you're thinking about food and managing this time, but also just thinking about how we come to choose some of the things that we do in life. So as you all know, at the end of uh, this call and this conversation with Erin, we'll kind of just keep score with her and see how she came to be where she is. So Erin, we've worked together now for about a year. Is that right? I think. I think so. I think we're at the one year mark. One of the first things I really want people to do is just get to know you a little bit and it'll be helpful for me to get to know you a little bit more than what we have from just the food perspective and nutrition perspective, but you're based outside of Boston. Is that right? Yes. Yep. That's me. Okay. How long have you lived there? Have you grown up in Boston your entire life? Um, So my family is from the Boston area. My mom is from Cape Cod, which is kind of a rural beachy area in the state. And my dad was raised downtown in an immigrant family deep in the city back in the seventies. And then they, yeah, so super neat. And we ended up, they met and we settled outside of the city and we lived in a quiet town growing up. And now my family lives even further out from the city in a pretty rural area. 
but my life in academia is actually downtown. So several days a week, I'm in the city all day. So I kind of do go in between. I'm kind of out in the country or I'm downtown. Okay. Okay. So nice balance city versus country. Would you say that you like the country more? I think I felt this way as a child and probably lost it for a little bit and have definitely returned to it where I think there's a deep sense of need to be in the woods and and outdoors and out in the fields with my animals and my flowers and my gardens. And as I've gotten older, it's definitely become kind of a safe haven for me. So I do love being in the city. I love being in the lab. I love going to my favorite coffee shops and, and walking around. I do love to come home to big green fields and forests. Fun fact about Erin, she actually has 40 chickens. (laughs) (laughs) That that is true. I have quite a few. So, okay. So bring me to that. You go into the city a few days a week for work. You're in the lab, but you come home. What is city life and how did you establish this life of of having these animals? Yeah. So city life for me is a blast because half my life is in academia, which I love so much. And the city offers so much in that sense, because Boston is just such a hub of science and biotech and research. So it really is a really special community. The connections and the people I get to spend time with downtown are so special to me and I'm super grateful for them. I do think that this lives in all people. I think some are more connected to it than others where there's a need for wild things and dirty things and fresh things and things that are really, really alive. And I find that definitely outside and and with all my animals. I joke that it's because my family is all like recent immigrants and only (laughs) one generation ago, they literally lived on thousands of acres with cattle. (laughs) Um, So I kind of like smile and think, okay, maybe I just can really feel this because it's so recent. But um, yeah, my dad is a a really, really big outdoorsman. And my parents just kind of raised us that way, which looking back, I'm really grateful for. We always were growing things and had gardens. My mom made everything at home food-wise from scratch. We are, we're always cooking and with our food, getting eggs out of the coop. On Sundays, we'd do things like go to church and go for a long drive and go get ice cream. And we were just kind of always out in the land and looking for more of it. So I think it just got really rooted in me. So we kind of just continue to do all those things together. I was just saying to my dad, can we open a cattle ranch? And do you want to be my business partner? <laughs> he was like, yes. Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, I mean, what you're saying is something that definitely resonates with me as well. Mm -hmm. I'm not quite at the stage in which I have dreams of owning a cattle ranch just yet, Mm -hmm. or nor do I have chickens. (laughs) But, you know, we moved out of New York City. And I think at first there was some apprehension for me. And Mm -hmm. at first I was really nervous. Like, this seems awesome. Everything seems better. I get more space and nature and I get to spend less money. Mm -hmm. But then I thought, what if I hate it? What's going to happen? And I'm so grateful. That is not the case at all. Like I am just like, oh, I'm so happy I left the city when I did. It just feels so much better. Like the fresh air, even just now with everything that we're experiencing in the world and this COVID-19 pandemic, being able to go on walks. And Erin and I have had some Mm. our normal nutrition talks with like me walking and she'll hear birds chirping, which is Mm -hmm. cool. I love Um, it. It's so fun. It's so fun. I feel really grateful for that space. And I think I appreciate nature maybe more than I have. But you know, you talking about this being ingrained in you and rooted in you, like it's part of your culture as a human, but of course, 
your background, in terms of where your parents have come from, how has your childhood or your teenage years impacted your love of nutrition and uh, dietics and and all of that? Mm -hmm. I think that I definitely, I know some people hate this word, but there's kind of no other word, but I totally was a foodie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I, (laughs) yeah, I totally grew up a foodie because my mom, she just kind of had the mentality of making everything at home. And because we grew so much of it, I would kind of get to see things basically from seed to table. We would go get herbs when we were making salsa, but instead of buying them at the store, I would go out to the back and snip them and then bring them in and wash them. And there was dirt on them, or I'd pluck a tomato for when I wanted to put mozzarella and pesto on top. And just, Mm -hmm. I kind of always had those interactions. Even cookies and treats were completely made at home. I remember being little and grabbing things in the store that I would see at friends' houses and they would be in boxes or prepackaged. And my mom would just kind of smile and put it back and say, honey, we'll make that at home. So I kind of always had that exposure. So I think it just totally biased me towards connecting with food a lot. And as I grew, I would say that like many people, food was able to infiltrate my life in some not as healthy ways where you hit puberty and you start becoming body conscious or noticing the size of things or the size of other people and the size of you. And I was an athlete, so I always felt a little bigger than other people. And I think I became really nutrition conscious, but didn't have any knowledge to arm myself with. So it was just like so many other people's experiences. I was inundated with diet culture, really. And it kind of fractured that really healthy relationship with food that I had previously. And it took a while to work through that. I would say the impetus for a lot of the healing was not being super healthy. As I grew, I started having just some health issues, tummy things, food allergies, things like that, that were a little funky. And I investigated and I had to investigate a lot on my own because there's a lot of help that we sometimes need that we can't get because doctors or dermatologists and others can't prescribe certain thoughts or ideas because they're not totally evidence-based. So I had to do a lot of self-experimentation and just kind of had this long saga with nutrition in my body, but also eventually was able to reunite the love and connection for food with a love, the, the love for science that I have and problem solving and healing and kind of unify those thoughts and then even take them further and unifying them beyond myself, but in an academic setting and then understanding what's the underlying mechanism, what's going on here, what's going on in the body, what's on my food, what's going on in the soil and just trying to marry those things. And then it just kind of continued to bloom into where I am now. Yeah, I find this so interesting because hearing your story is making me think like, man, my story when it comes to food feels radically different. So the first thing is that totally would agree with this like foodie mindset. And although my parents cooked at home a lot and there was a space for great, we don't need this in the store, we can make it at home. We got to this place in culture, at least what it felt like in my house, where Remember when organic felt like, I would guess, a trend or just like a nice thing to have as opposed to people really understanding the value. Mm -hmm. And that's so much of what it felt like for me. And so when you're talking about 
this place of you having to self-experiment or you even knowing that there was a difference in your body. I think about people like myself who didn't have this clear sort of line of like, hey, this feels good and this doesn't feel like normal or whatever normal should feel like. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering from you going through the process of self-experimentation, what would you recommend for those people who never had a normal that maybe would allow them to understand that maybe it's time to experiment or try different things that might actually make them feel better? Mm -hmm. Sure. That's a good question. And it's going to be different for every person. I think probably the next frontier of nutrition is going to be more customization with nutrigenomics and figuring out, okay, what's in this genome? What does this body need? That might be different than other bodies based on the genetic profile. And then also the microbiome and even possibly the virome and figuring out what bacterial and viral species are living in, on, and around this person and how is that modifying the host and vice versa. So it is tricky because some of the science, unfortunately, isn't there yet. What I would say is with experimentation, the big thing that jumps out to me, there's two big things. One is connection and one is awareness because the food culture that we live in now is kind of fraught with commercialism in two key regards, which is one, you have so much commercialism promoting constant consumption, which is resulting in chronic overnutrition for most of the population and with low food quality, which as we know is a big problem. But then on the flip side, the commercialism is also producing diet culture. They're selling supplements and books and booty bands and (laughs) probiotics and everything under the sun. And both of them are kind of robbing people of connection and awareness, which is how am I connected to my food? What is going on between me and my plate? And that's actually no one else's business in some regards, even though the diet industry and the food industry want to be there. And then the other thing is the awareness, which is that one thing that I do find with my clients that always jumps out at me is people don't know how unwell they feel until they feel better because it's normal for them. So I just the other day, even with young athletes, I'll have, I mean, it happens with all my clients, but it always is surprising when even a young person says something to me, like, I feel so clear. I feel so energetic. My tummy feels so smooth and comfortable or things like that are so interesting to me. And it's always exciting to find those little nuggets. And that's that awareness of, I didn't even know I could feel better because I've always felt this way. And that's where following those clues is trickiest because awareness can feel uncomfortable. I think sometimes our, our culture would rather feel numb We love indulgences and alcohol and distractions and all those things. And tuning in requires a a profound degree of awareness that probably really truthfully has to be practiced and kind of introduced via graded exposure rather than totally diving in head first. But as people experiment, I would say focus on awareness and connection. What's going on between you and your food? What foods are you selecting and why? And how are they making you feel? And then I would test things. I feel really good when I eat high fiber meals with monounsaturated fats and proteins and nuts and seeds. And, or I feel really my best when I do blank. And that actually does require some experimentation, but there's a lot of fun to have with experimenting with food so long as we can get into 
connecting and being aware? So connection, awareness, this all sounds so good. And even just <laughs> fun story, if you all feel annoyed enough with me on Instagram for posting all of like my creations that I'm making, <laughs> feel bad for Erin because we have like a running doc that we share meals that I'm eating just to build that awareness. But as you're mentioning, I totally feel these moments of guilt where I'm like, oh, should I not be eating this ice cream? Should I send it? Should I not send it? And then I go into this like suppressing. I'm like, okay, I don't know. Maybe I didn't put everything or maybe I did put everything. And so it's certainly uncomfortable. But the other thing that you're mentioning, which I think is interesting is just the fact that people have to really be able to be okay with what their individual story looks like Mm -hmm. and not dependent on all of the mess that's out there. Even just in the current moment, we see so much shit, like so much that is sort of like, buy your booty band, get your supplements, Mm -hmm. all this stuff. Everybody's doing an online workout. Everybody's got an online Zoom class during this pandemic, which is helpful and wonderful, but it's hard because I don't know. I mean, I know just because we've been working together, but maybe people don't know, you know, what to pick. So my question for you then is, how do you navigate the waters as a professional, as a health uh, and nutrition professional in a space where there's just so many different distractions and so many people with different thoughts about food and dieting and exercise. And then also like, what draws you to this work? Like, why do you want to do it? Yeah, that's like a question for the ages. So <laughs> this that first part is so important, which is how do you manage this information tsunami and decide what's true or what's not? For me, One thing that is true about the health field is that in many regards, and I don't mean this disparagingly, but there's not a particularly high bar of entry. You could become a, and there's nothing wrong with these people. I love these people, but you can become a personal trainer or a health coach or something like that. And oftentimes that does bleed into coaching nutrition, but there might not be necessarily an academic background. Or of course, even to a greater degree, there's influencers now. (laughs) This has become (laughs) such a thing. And influencers are not necessarily educators. And I think that there is a big difference. And that's what drew me into pursuing nutrition sciences in an academic setting because it holds you accountable to the truth. And that is something that's extremely important to me, but it is exhausting Um, But you have to, from, from my perspective, I have to commit myself to the, all of the foundations and mastering those biochemistry, microbiology, anatomy, and physiology, organic chemistry, inorganic chemistry, nutrient metabolism, all of these things um, are required in an academic setting of dietitians and master's degrees and PhDs. And, um, That helps me sift. And that's why I have to be the ultimate filter for my clients because it's it's really on me to be able to sift. And so actually people might be surprised. My Instagram and my social media, I do not follow any health accounts. I follow food and farm blogs. (laughs) 
<laughs> um, just because the health accounts on social media are um, not necessarily the scientists. And I love the scientists. I, I go to PubMed and the New England Journal of Medicine and, and research articles to get the information for my clients. And that's totally on me. And I, I have to bring that to them. So I would say the sifting requires mastery which is one of the reasons I love academia because you literally get tested. And I just yeah. think that that is essential to being the best scientist I can be. So I love it for that reason. And that's also what drew me to it to answer the second part of the question, which is I want to know the truth. And the way I learn in a formal setting is I get almost agitated really uh, to, <laughs> to confess. If I feel like I kind of know a little bit about something, but I don't really know the whole picture, I don't know the whole pathway, I don't know every molecule, enzyme, whatever it may be, I get a little agitated. To me, it's like, wait, what? I don't, I don't get it. Like, I really have to reread everything, go to the professor, watch videos, draw it. I have whiteboards all over my room. I draw all the <laughs> pathways of the things I'm learning. And I like that. It agitates me, but it addicts me. So I really like spending time in that space and then being able to deliver that to the people that the patients and clients that I'm trying to help is so rewarding. And I'm just so impressed with that mindset when it comes to life in general, this searching and sifting for truth, because I just feel like so many people are not doing that in all types of work, not just health and nutrition, like everything. And even just when it comes to the news, like there's so much mm -hmm. stuff out there and it's like, people will pick the thing that validates them most or makes them feel most comfortable or less fearful as opposed to just sort of really trying to understand what's mm. most helpful and what matters. So the value of truth is exciting. What I want to do now is just sort of explore just a little bit more about you personally. What would you say you're most proud of in your life? Like in this point, you think about this space of sifting for truth, working through all that you are. What do you feel most proud of? I would say most proud of in my life would kind of be, I think my ability to embrace change and challenges that has kind of bloomed within me over time. It was a trait that didn't used to be there, but is there now. And I think it kind of makes me who I am in some ways. So I think probably maybe that trait would be my okay. most proud. Okay. Embracing changes and challenges. Is there a moment that feels particularly clear for you when you felt like you did that really well? Yeah. So I would say, I mean, as teenagers are, I was not the healthiest individual, <laughs> but <laughs> inside or out. Me and, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not pretty going back through those memories, but I would say what kind of brought me out of my darker days as a teen was my personality has a proclivity to trend towards rigidity. I think that I probably was in the military in my past life and maybe I will be again <laughs> in my next. It just suits me. It connects with me. Like David Goggins is one of my favorite people. If you've ever um, seen David Goggins. I haven't. I, tell me about him. I love this man. He's a, a Navy SEAL, an Army Ranger. He has passed like three or four of the special operations schools for the U.S. military. And now he's an ultra marathon runner and kind of a motivational speaker. And he's just so funny and so spot on with his sense of discipline and self-control. And mm -hmm. my personality really trends towards that when dealing with myself. 
And so I just love him so much. He's a great example. Some people might say some of us need more Goggins. Some might say, okay, some of us need less Goggins and you need to relax (laughs) a little bit. I think I fall in the less Goggins category. But when I was coming out of not being a super healthy or productive human being, I trended towards a lot of rigidity. It drew me in because it resonated with me and I lived with a lot of rigidity. There was I was a CrossFit athlete and coach and there was multiple workouts per day. I trained people and I didn't give them the space or grace to kind of grow and feel things out. Like to me, it was so, you know, just eat your vegetables, Karen. Like I just, I couldn't get why someone wouldn't do it. You know what I mean? Like, so I wasn't really probably actually a great coach at all, by the way, but, and it's because I was that way with myself, the rigidity comes out when you live with rigidity within. And I had to grow out of that. And because I couldn't continue to do that to myself because it was suffocating me, I had to find a way to be healthier and happier. And as I felt that part of me recede and soften, and now things will happen where I kind of will even smile knowing the way I probably used to would have responded versus how I'm responding now. And it always brings a little smile to my face. So interesting to think about just how we can take maybe like the qualities that empower us in some ways, like your discipline and the rigidness. And while it might serve you, understand that it also probably has negative implications at times and being able to determine when it's valid and, and when it's not. Have you found this to be true? Like, do you, are you able to kind of turn it on and off the rigidness when it's useful and rigidness when it just doesn't help? Yeah, I would say that that's probably a balance I continue to work on, but I think mm-hmm. I am prone to maybe driving myself a little crazy and catching that before it happens is my next renaissance. <laughs> Okay. Waiting and hoping for that one to happen. (laughs) (laughs) Plus one. I mean, it's it's just a constant journey. And, you know, it's funny. I was saying to Erin earlier and something that I think about for myself, like I have to remind myself constantly that she's a human. (laughs) And when she, because we'll talk and I'm like, wow, like she's so good. I think like one time, maybe it was last summer or something like that. But she was like, yeah, you know, like even if you get ice cream like a few times during the summer I'm like a few times during the summer or at least I was thinking that I'm like how do I not eat ice cream every day in the summer mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's interesting to think about the qualities that you see in another person and want so badly but not think about how that might show up in their life from a full complex human perspective and the fact that they're probably working at it in some ways or not Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Because there's, there's no perfection. There's always this kind of spectrum and we have to kind of balance that out. We each are going to have our own balance beam mm-hmm. and learning how to walk that well is kind of a life's journey. Yeah, it definitely, definitely is. So when you think about today and now, so this balance beam trying to just be, of course, somebody who can use their discipline for good and continue on in wanting to serve others through truth when it comes to how they treat themselves when it comes to food and just health in general. Um, In being motivated to do that work, I know for myself, there are times when this is just not a perfect journey. There are times when I'll do really, really well. And then I'll be like, 
Erin, I ate pasta every single night for two weeks straight. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what do we do about that? And so what keeps you going when maybe success is just not so perfect looking? Definitely. It's super interesting, but I think the work behind the work that we kind of have to do as a culture is really motivating to me. Mm -hmm. And when we look at, even right now, unfortunately, with like the COVID-19 pandemic, we're looking at population data and epidemiology and stats on who's contracting this case and who's having severe cases, what are the risk factors and, and so on. And it's kind of beginning to show itself in the U.S. that we're seeing hospitalization rates for younger populations that we weren't seeing in other countries. There's a lot of questions as to why that's occurring. We're seeing large pockets of the U.S. kind of become overcome with the contagion with more serious cases because of our underlying health problems. And yeah. um, the United States is, and many other countries are as well, but the U.S. is just as I mentioned earlier, we're just kind of plagued by this commercial food industry. And there's so much drama unfolding all the time in the research sciences about this, but then also in our, our diet culture, our conversations at the dinner table, our conversations at work. There's every diet under the sun is available. There's every product under the sun. Yeah. But then there's the truth about how we end up being healthy or not is so personal. And what's driving all of our food choices and behaviors is so unique. But it's also super global because mm -hmm. if you're reared in a society where having a garden is considered tedious, no one has time to cook dinner, no one would even honestly dream of it because they're not interested. We sit inside four walls all day with very little sunshine and movement. And the result is these um, metabolic illnesses that are just robbing people of their human experiences in many ways, the movement and the freedom and the sun on your skin and the confidence and the muscle and the joy of thriving um, not just, you know, our, all of our nutritional guidelines are basically set to how do we keep this body alive? There's a big right. difference between not dying and thriving. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it means so much to me to work towards fixing that because there's no day where that's not going to matter. It's always going to matter. And I just have to, you know, talk to a few different clients and all of a sudden it's, it's like a, all the fire is under me, even on my, my tired days, because the work is, is so important. Yeah, people really need you. And I know I need you. So that makes me <laughs> having you makes me feel better. Mm -hmm. But for those who might not have access, and also just thinking about tangibility, I think one of the hardest things for me, even just thinking about nutrition is that it's just like, well, how do I make this easier? How do I not just make this only about a diet? And also, how do I do this when I am battling the emotions that come with just really trying to survive, especially during a time like this. Like right now is such an uncertain time for everyone. How do you think food is playing a role? What have you seen happen maybe with clients or just observing others out on the internet? Uh, mm -hmm. How is food making a difference right now? Yeah. So I would say it's been very interesting. I have joked that this crisis is kind of a little bit of a Petri dish for each of us in our homes. We're kind of our own little lab experiment right now because Things yeah. that we dealt with before this occurred are definitely rearing their heads even more so. So for my clients who kind of trend towards having wine every night, they're having more of it. 
or mm-hmm. clients who stress eat, they're prompted to stress eat more. Anything we dealt with before is just really showing itself. And I think that it speaks to a lot of different things because when we grow up, we hopefully are able to find ways to self-regulate that involve strategies other than food. But I think, again, this speaks to kind of our culture, which is that things that would restore us truthfully, thing, they're, they're deep things, they're deep conversations, they're cues of safety, and they're being heard and being seen by the people who matter most to us. They're you know, sitting by streams in the forests and, and really re-regulating all these pathways that become so frazzled. And yeah. we're not really armed with those tools because our culture doesn't really use them. So by mm-hmm. the time we're adults, we struggle to self-regulate and, well, what feels good? Shopping, food, alcohol, eating mm-hmm. out, um, things like that. So it's so easy to just turn to those. But then when we're when we're faced with a moment where we need to self-soothe in some regard and we only have one or two strategies, that's where we get diseases of overindulgence. And so with this current pandemic, food isn't, for some people, it's having the opportunity to serve its purpose. So some of my clients are not, you know, they're, they're feeling the heat of some things they were dealing with previously, but other Mm -hmm. clients are also taking the opportunity to like, oh my God, I have time to marinate and braise a chicken. This is so fun. I'm, I'm also <laughs> seeing that, which is super exciting. But food right now can be a resource for nourishment. And because we always think of food as a diet. Yeah. And, but food is so much more than a diet. Food is, is nourishment and connection. It's community. It's communication. And so we can take advantage of that now and spend more time with food and just focus on nourishing. We don't have to focus on dieting, but then we also don't have to give in to those things that think they might make us feel better. Any type of uh, binge or, or super indulgent foods that maybe aren't particularly nourishing. There's a place for those. Don't get me wrong because mm-hmm. I don't believe in like not having delicious treats. Yeah, I, That world is not necessary, but <laughs> I think finding that that mix of what's actually making me feel better. And then also harnessing those strategies for self-regulation other than food and, yeah. and getting outside and talking to people and meditating and getting those other fantastic strategies in our day, I think is what we all have to kind of consider right now. Yeah, I would agree with that. I so inspired by this mindset of all of our lives being somewhat of a Petri dish and, and, trying to really understand what truly works for you and what doesn't. And so it kind of loops back to the experimentation we were talking about earlier, but maybe Mm -hmm. this is a true time of experimentation for all of us to figure out what we really need. And I agree, it kind of actually reminds me too of that meme that's been floating around on Instagram, that it's like, turns out all of my hobbies are like going out to restaurants and non-essential businesses. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And that's so real because like when you think about, like you said, those one or two tools of self-regulation, so many of us are just in this bind of, okay, so I can drink wine and I can watch Netflix and don't get me wrong, like I do those things, but I'm like, does this actually make me feel good? And how do I nourish? And like, what do I actually need? And I don't know, I hate diminishing, obviously, the negative impacts of everything that's happening right now. But I definitely feel somewhat grateful for like a pause that I probably wouldn't have ever had and a pause to focus on the things that I like you're saying, it's like, wow, 
braising a chicken isn't so bad and it's right. probably easier than you think. And you might get results that make you feel like it's worthwhile. We just were too distracted to ever really know or yes. to ever consider that it was worthwhile. Absolutely. And you actually are the client who had the genius quote about this. This was months ago, <laughs> but it's always stuck out to me, which is that we were talking about the joy of food. And of mm -hmm. course, we know that eating food is joyful because it's delicious. But you said one of my favorite things about cooking at home is that I not only get the joy of the consumption, but I get the joy of picking out the ingredients. I get the joy yeah. of preparing it. I get the joy of sharing it with someone that I love. There's this kind of, it almost seems tedious when it's still foreign, but then when it's not foreign anymore, because you've embraced the process of food preparation, you have this mm -hmm. kind of therapeutic, like pleasurable experience many of the times that you spend time in the kitchen and then it's like, Oh, this is fantastic. What was I so scared of? <laughs> exactly. No, I, and I love that you're bringing that up because that's been exactly my cooking experience, like really being in touch with the entire process and feeling mm -hmm. so grateful for it. So like, as I mentioned before, while our starting ground to getting here is much different, I feel whatever it was that you were experiencing back then as a kid when I'm like, oh, like I can go to this farm that is like near where I live now and get like grass fed organic ground beef and it just tastes different. Mm -hmm. And that's exciting. Or wow, it's as silly as like having a basil plant in your house, but like yeah. I'm in control of that and I love it. And it's such a cool experience and it's changed cooking for me and, and food for me so much. Just feeling more in control than ever before. And while I say all of this, I am desperately like wanting to go to a restaurant because I can't. <laughs> I'm like, somebody get me somewhere where somebody else can cook for me. But, you know, it's the luxury of being able to, to balance both, which I think is, is really cool. Yes. So what I would say now, just thinking about people who might be new to this journey or thinking about how to manage during this time, do you have any tips, tips that you would share with people who might be either struggling with nutrition or maybe doing okay, but need a better sense of control during a time that feels really shaky and maybe a place where they're not self-regulating way that is maybe as useful as it could be. Like, what would you recommend for them to get started? Definitely. So one thing I've been doing with clients that I think has been so fun is We've been creating, and all my clients are, are making their own with my help, and so they're very unique to the individual, and I'm encouraging people to make what I'm calling feel-good checklists, and this is so that people can take the opportunity to reflect on, okay, what actually feels good, which, by the way, we never ask ourselves because we don't take that time for us, and when we tune into that, we have to look at ourselves with a new lens. So as I mentioned before, now's probably not the time to be dieting, but <laughs> it's also a good time to be thinking about nutrient density. What does my body need right now? Or emotional health. I'm, I'm feeling so stressed and overwhelmed. I really need something here. And building that checklist of foods that feel good, activities that feel good, meals that feel good, people that feel good, whether they're in your quarantine circle and they're with you in person or you Zoom with them, um, meditations and breath work and mindful movement, fitness and steps per day and sunshine, 
going through and exploring these things with a novel lens. So in other words, when we look at food, we have a lot of mental tags on the food. We think of good, bad, cheap, treat, indulgent, calories, fat, carb. There's all these tags on the food. And when we tag items, it can put in a, a price on them that it might not otherwise have. So in other words, we know that like in intuitive eating theory and in some preliminary research, and there are biological mechanisms for this, but there's certain types of foods that feel really rewarding because they feel like a cheat or it feels like a food you're not supposed to have. And so now we've tagged this food as rewarding or better than say like a a bowl of ice cream versus a bowl of kale. That ice cream is tagged as being better because we think we're not supposed to have it. But Mm -hmm. these tags from culture or, and also there's, there's taste receptors and and palate reasons for this as well. Fatty foods are very satisfying, especially when they're sweet, but just from an emotional perspective, um, I'm being reductionist, but it's just for the sake of this conversation. But so we tag that ice cream and now it feels more rewarding. We're going to think that having some of that might be self-care or a treat or indulgent or it's something I need right now. Mm -hmm. But then if you actually pay attention to how something makes you feel, some ice cream is fine, you know, whatever, but any treat food or alcohol or super indulgent foods that we've tagged as cheats might actually not make us feel particularly physically well in large consumptions. We might feel stomach aches. We might feel bloated. We might feel fatigued. And, but just because we've tagged it emotionally, we are actually overriding the physical awareness of, I kind of feel like crap. Yeah. (laughs) So I encourage people to try to remove tags and actually do what feels good. And what actually feels good might be this other place that you've never been to if you are to release these tags and actually just follow your body. And you might find things like I do really well with power bowls and salads and berries and dark chocolate, and I need to have a couple eggs for breakfast, or I love this shake that I make, or whatever, whatever. The list goes on. But experimenting with your health by untagging things and actually listening to your body is, is really worthwhile. It's a worthwhile experiment. So I would say creating a feel good checklist where you're really attuned to yourself and then building up strategies to feel really good. It might be meals. It might be foods. It might be activities. It could be, as I mentioned earlier, walks, meditation, movement, sunshine. The list of things that feel good is actually can be pretty long, which is really nice. Yeah. Such perfect and beautiful advice and so important because people, we can do this now, like now more than ever. And and I'm not saying that all of us are, you know, doing nothing. I know people are busy at home being teachers and partners and working Mm -hmm. still and all of that, but even just assessing so that when we get back to quote unquote normal, if that is going to be a thing, Mm -hmm. you're not following the conditions of what we have said is okay. When in reality, to Aaron's point, like we're just sort of surviving as opposed to thriving and all about sounds like just reconditioning ourselves so that we aren't just numb and we aren't self-regulating in the wrong ways. I really love that. All right, Aaron. So just thinking about getting back to, you know, the, the core of this podcast, keeping score, really just trying to understand your journey. 
you're you're living a life today where you get to really help other people and you get to create a semblance of control and wholesomeness and, and wholesomeness in the sense of just like things that actually really help people feel good and many of us really have access to from a food perspective. Um, where do you see yourself going in the future? Like what's like the, the next thing for you just in your journey? Well, good question. (laughs) There's a lot of um, big dreams and then there's some medium dreams and then there's some, could I actually pull that off dreams? And I think for me, the first set of factors is I think going into a PhD program for me is, will be the next step. I'm looking at possibly getting my PhD in microbiology. Wow. Um, And I want to study microbiology in particular because I kind of hinted at this earlier, but we're we're definitely finding this to be the new frontier of human health, of all the microbe populations covering the inside and the outside of the body. But also those microbial populations are everywhere. They're in our soil, they're on our food, they're in our trees, they're in our water, in our animals. And I mean, actually, of course, a virus has taken over the media of 2020. So everyone suddenly has some more microbiology on their brains. But microbiology can also be extremely therapeutic and beneficial. And it's extremely complex. So that's something that I'm really drawn to, and I think might be on the docket for me. And then I hope to marry that with my love of, of soil and sustainable food production. So I hope one day to be able to have some sort of a farm or ranch where I can have people come and learn and they they could come to retreats. They can come and do farm tours and start understanding carbon life cycles, emissions, carbon sequestration, microbes, just things for their health. And interestingly, the things that benefit our health tend to also benefit the health of the environment. So we can hopefully in my career, I'll be able to bring those things together and then help people to do the same and reap the therapeutic benefits from that. I love this so much. It's so exciting. And aren't we all glad that we have people like Erin, because I don't know about you, I failed organic chemistry. (laughs) That's like the first barrier to entry. Like nobody wants me in any PhD program learning about these things. So I'm grateful to have you on my side. You can explain it to me in layman's terms. You're so funny. Um, I love it. Organic. (laughs) Organic is tricky. I'm not going to lie. I feel you. It was so hard. I I remember failing and I walked out of like the library of my school and I called my dad. And I was like, I'm not good. I, at the time I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And I was like, I'm not going to be a doctor. And he was like, you can. I'm like, no, I literally can't. I failed the class. Like I can't take any No more titrations that. for me. I'm over it. <laughs> yeah, it was terrible. So grateful you have you. other gifts though. So it, it doesn't matter. You have your other gifts that are serving the rest of us. So well. <laughs> Thank you. I'm like, yeah, we're going to have to balance it out. We can't all be good at everything. We cannot. Um, that's for sure. Amen. <laughs> So a couple more, just two questions, two fun ones. What's your life swap fantasy? Like if you could either take a characteristic from another person or just like a lifestyle, have you a one? Do you have one? And if you do, what is it? That's a funny question. And I think my answer is going to seem totally bizarre, (laughs) but I will preface it with one thing that I think I do very consciously is to kind of never envy or mimic. And I kind of do that on purpose because I did notice when I was younger, how 
tricky that was for me because it always makes me feel like, oh God, I, I should be farther along or I should be doing X, Y, or Z. So I think I probably have created little filters around myself for that. But one person where I'm like, okay, I really like his lifestyle is um, there is a very, I won't say famous because none of you might know him. He's famous in the community. Um, okay. He is a farmer named Joel Salatin. Okay. And he has kind of pioneered basically actually so has um alan savory of the savory institute but joel is here in the united states alan is in mm -hmm. south africa but they have pioneered soil science and holistic management and regenerative management of land and in doing so they have shown even with scientific data like carbon life cycle analysis and whatnot that you can sequester carbon in the earth with particular farming practices. So the like, for example, the holistic management of ruminants moving through pastures and restoring topsoil um, okay. or doing cover crops um, when your when your plants are off season and rotating pastures and things like that. And they Joel just has this beautiful, beautiful farm. I'm dying to go to it down in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. And mm -hmm. he really has just mastered being a responsible and holistic steward of the land. And he's produced a lot of work that is counterintuitive to much of the agriculture and nutrition community because he's not big ag, he's not big nutrition, he's not using chemicals and things like that. And everyone thinks you have to do that to produce food. So he's kind of just been this little rebel mm. and has done it really successfully and has the proof is in the pudding. His farm and the output and the production and the science is um, just mesmerizing. So I think if I could be anyone, I would be a middle-aged man in Virginia. Named <laughs> <Dallas>. <laughs> I love um, that. I'm so grateful for those people though who are willing to rebel and you know it's making me think a lot about myself in ways where while I haven't like heard of Joel in this context until now I'm like why am I not rebelling against what feels so obvious and I think that that's really important you know like that space of being like coming back to the self-coping or mechanisms like mm -hmm. is this actually the best way and really trying to find what truly works best feels really, really special and important for all of us, especially in this moment in time. Definitely. All right. Last question for you. And this is the keeping score question, everyone. So scale of one to 10, as is, how much would you recommend your life to another person, Erin? One being like, no way. 10 being like, this is the best life ever. I would say if you're like me, it is a 10 because okay. even the things that are extremely, I think one thing that I've learned is even the things that are extremely painful, even physical pain or emotional pain, or even the things that are disorienting, you have to go through them because what you discover in your ability to explore or heal and build resiliency is what will serve you on the other side of that chaos. So you, you kind of have to embrace, bear, and grow out of chaos and then find some order. And then the truth is you're going to embrace, bear, and be in the midst of chaos yet again. There's never going to be none. So I think if you can embrace the fact that you have to weather storms to find truth, then we can hang out. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, 
I'm certainly not um, there 100% working at it as we talked about, just like a constant journey. But last thing I'll ask you just as like a parting gift for people in the world here, you've talked about just like being able to embrace weathering the storms. Is there any other piece of advice you would give for those of us who are really trying to search for truth in everything and all aspects of our life? Definitely. I would say for me, one of the most helpful things has been to become aware of the concept of the ego and all, and the ego is not a negative word. All it is, is our brains have to create stories to make sense out of things where we work in stories, which I think is really interesting. And that's how we decide who we are, who the world is, who other people are. And then our brain will scan to always try to reinforce that story. Because if we were to consider, oh, I'm completely wrong, that opens up the door to chaos, which we hate. So we try to keep order and we try to reinforce stories that we believe to be true. This is very subconscious. Mm -hmm. But I would say becoming aware of the ego and realizing, what if this story that I'm telling myself isn't true? And these stories can show themselves in so many ways. I know the story when I was unhealthy, the story of my ego was things are easier for other people. I just don't have enough. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough opportunity. Um, Everything works against me. Nothing works in my favor. I just can't do it. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. And you can provide yourself a rebirth if you start to think, what if that's not true? And what if I'm just looking for reasons to reinforce that? Because our brains really try to keep the norm going, even if the norm isn't serving us. So just questioning that and then considering the possibility that there might be totally different story and we're missing it. Yeah. I'm uh, another journey, but you're so right. I just love the simple question of what if that's not true? Really checking yourself and getting ourselves into a space where we are free to your alternatives and consider that there are many truths. Mm-hmm. All right, Aaron. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Everyone, I am so grateful for this conversation. I hope that it nourishes you and serves you in thinking about how we can use this time in quarantine to better support our lifestyles and ourselves and also just our future selves. One day we're going to be outside and you can run and shop and go to restaurants mm-hmm. and do all this crap that you want to do. But I hope that we are better for the time that we spent here and and can make use of, you know, of course, all the negative things that might be coming as a consequence during this time.